Hello and welcome to this special edition of the New Zealand Property Market Podcast. Today we're giving Nick and Kelvin a well-deserved break and we're going to be talking about a different face of CoreLogic. My name is Richard Deakin and I look after our insurance clients here in New Zealand. And joining me is someone whose work has fascinated me for many, many years, our very own in-house construction data expert, Dr. Georgia McGregor. Welcome, Georgia. Thanks, Richard. Um, It's great to be here. And great to have you on the pod. So, I mean, Georgia, you've been with CoreLogic, sorry, with Cordell and then CoreLogic for around uh, 11 years, I think. Um, But I also understand you've got a bit of an interesting background. Can, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yep, certainly. Um, so prior to working with Cordell and CoreLogic, I completed a degree in architectural design, uh, followed by a, doc- a PhD in architecture and video games. Okay, so, and that PhD was focused on looking at how play and architecture work inside video games. And it's really based on the fact that all video game spaces are architecture because they're artificially constructed environments, so even the landscape. And in the PhD, I look at how the spaces of video games are used to drive play. So for the actual PhD, I played around about 100 different video games. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard work, I know, Richard. That sounds terrible. Yep. And one of the things I was particularly interested in was patterns of spatial use. So you have games where the architecture is the enemy trying to kill you or you have a puzzle to be solved within the architecture. And then you have things like strategy games, where the architecture is codified to represent certain types of production or defensive capabilities. So, you know, obviously I went into a lot more different things, but that's sort of the main thing it was about. And I know you're going to ask me, does this relate to what I do now? Or was it just an excuse to go gold farming in World of Warcraft? (laughs) I think it sounds like if it was an excuse, it sounds like an excellent one. But how how does it relate to what you're doing now? Okay, so it's really about patterns of data. So one of the things I really love doing is structuring data and making it easy to use, making that complex, simple. So within the PhD, I was really just trying to work out how many different types of game spaces were there and how would I sort of structure those into something that sort of made it easy to understand those environments. And it's just the same actually without costing data now because our data is absolutely useless without structure. You'd have a huge sea of individual costs and without the order we impose on, it's actually almost impossible to use. And I think it, it is fascinating. I mean, I was tickled by this when, when um, I found out about this earlier. So I have actually gone away and read your thesis now and it is fascinating. <laughs> Um, and, and I can see why you, you got so interested in it. And I know you were talking about World of Warcraft and Lord of the Rings games, but I know looking at my own 13-year-old sons, they live in a, an amazing online world of incredible 3D structures in Minecraft and Roblox. And I've never really considered how important the architecture was to the gameplay, not just as you know, eye candy, as you call it, in the, in the game. But I think you, you've done more than just video games, I think. Um. Are you talking here about my honours thesis as well? Oh, I might be, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes, no, I also did an honours thesis on extraterrestrial architecture in the pre-20th century, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> I love this is brilliant. So what was involved in that then? Okay, so in this one, I was exploring how architecture was used in fiction before the 20th century to represent alien civilizations. And 
that start, so the first place I started with was Lucian of Samosata, who was a Roman citizen in the second century AD, who wrote about journeys to the moon, which is quite a common theme in the, these early sort of pieces. And I go right up to the 1900 to H.G. Wells and the man in the moon, and we're looking across any examples of, you know, life outside of Earth and how they used architecture to make it sort of, you know, either to make them familiar to make them different to use parody to change you know to, to, and it's quite interesting because you know even if it's the architecture is absolutely the same if it's an alien civilization why is it exactly the same um you know some of them are really quite interesting as well too so i think it was 1657 serrano de bergerac wrote voyage to the moon and in his in his piece, he had houses that screw down into the ground to escape the weather, and other houses that can travel like a hundred leagues in eight days. So it's you know, it's really quite fascinating stuff. And it is, and it's amazing how much many of those um, how many of those authors sort of predicted things that would happen in the future. And I'm thinking about people like Arthur C. Clarke and his predictions around mobile phones and, um, mm -hmm. you know, spaceships and space travel and so on. And um, especially when I think of things like aliens and just the environment created by H.R. Geiger with his, his aliens. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible stuff. Yes. And, and whilst I would love to talk around this all day because it is really, really interesting, um, I'm really keen to understand a little bit more around you and sort of where you got to sort of at, at, at this stage. And I know... Um, thinking back to sort of the International Women's Day, which took place um, sort of late last month, there, there's certainly been a big focus on you know choosing to challenge and and also seeking out and celebrating women's achievements. And clearly, you're, you're obviously a very highly qualified and experienced construction expert working in an industry that has traditionally been very male dominated. Um, you know, although I'm hoping that that is that is starting to change. Um, I mean, I guess, what are some of the challenges you've come up against or seen in your time in the industry? Okay, personally, I've experienced very little overt sexism, but I think partially that's because I've come from this academic background and then moved into the, the cost research for construction. And I think that's very different to having come up through the job site. You know, I had the advantage of studying also in a relatively new field of research. So you kind of got to make the rules up as you, as you went along. There wasn't that sort of long history of, you know, the certain way of doing things to go against. However, saying that, I've also seen a really pretty big change in the construction industry from when I was younger. And I'm really thinking back to here when I was living in the early 20s, you couldn't walk past a building site without being whistled at. And you certainly didn't want to go and look at the calendars in the lunchroom. And it was just such an exclusively male-dominated kind of in industry. And, and I have seen, you know, particularly younger women going into the trades and things like that. And I, quite a few of them have had fairly positive experiences, although there's always the exceptions to that. And then at CoreLogic, we also have a really strong female representation in our leadership team. And I think that helps to keep the playing field quite level as well, too. No, that's definitely that's definitely very good, very good. And um, and I mean, how did you come to be working at Cordell in the first place? Okay, so once I finished my PhD, I really liked that research. I didn't want to go into becoming an architect, so I think I actually applied for this job doing research in the costing team with a. I think I wrote one line in my application. I think for 14 words was the maximum I put in there and, yeah, I got the job. Um, and what were those magic 14 words then? 
I just basically said, if you want to see how good I am, have a look at my resume. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I love, I love it. I love the confidence and no wonder they, um, they picked up on that experience and your enthusiasm. I mean, I think that's brilliant. Um, I must remember that one. So, and, and what about the future of the industry? I mean, do you think you'll see more women moving into sort of more key roles in construction? I think construction has a pretty interesting future. So on one hand, we've got things like robotics, 3D printing of building materials and building information systems or BIM. And then on the other hand, we've got things like an increased emphasis on renewable materials and energy efficiency and embodied energy materials. So when you consider these sort of changes coming in, which is obviously it's a lot more about um, brain rather than born. It's about, you know, it's about how we build and how we sort of take this further into systems. So how will gender play into those particular changes? I think in general, there's much less emphasis on gender and much more gender fluidity in the younger generations. But at the same time, I also think you only have to go into like the, the toy aisles inside a, a supermarket or a shopping centre to see how we still really relentlessly gender a lot of things. So I don't see in those aisles a lot of construction Barbies. And unless you sort of, uh, if unless women want to go into these industries, they won't change. So I think partly it's about the way the industry represents itself going forward is going to be very important. No, and I think that it's, it's an interesting point, especially with the, the way that we still market towards um, genders with specific, but hopefully that, that will change over time. Yeah. It's great to hear that the construction industry, which has been you know, realistically a very male-held, male-dominated um, environment, is now embracing a lot more diversity. And you know, looking closer at the industry itself, though, I'd like to get your take on kind of what's happening now in the construction sector. You know, what are the kind of key influences or, or trends that you see happening in construction markets in general uh, across Australia and New Zealand? Okay. Um, New Zealand and Australian markets are quite similar. We obviously use very similar construction methods with a lot of kind of local variations. So whereas in Australia we have crappy fibros with no insulation in our past, you guys had leaky cladding in New Zealand. You have earthquakes and we can't have bushfires. In both countries, and in particular obviously I'm, I've been following Australia more, we've come off of a shortfall of housing compared to demand. And I believe that's the same in New Zealand. So in both countries, we've seen a big rise in residential approvals going forward. And one of the things we see as a result of that is that builders have so much work is that they can kind of call the shots on how much they're charging. Now, I did some work back a few years ago on cost differences between Australia and New Zealand. And I remember being supplied with some prices from one of the New Zealand authorities. And I think the biggest variation in costs we had was 410% difference between two different quotes. And what can I say? It's like always get more than one quote because the price differences can be, you know, quite insane. And that's one of the challenges about doing costing work. Um, is it a more affordable in Australia or New Zealand? And that's a question we often ask as well too. Now, from that study, which again is a few years ago, New Zealand cost less to build but then you also earn less and one of the things you have to take into account is what they call purchasing power parity or it's also known as the big mac index 
which is basically how much does a Big Mac cost compared to average earnings or how far will your dollar go? So you always have to take that into account when you're looking at those cost differences. And the other thing, there's also been a lot of anecdotal evidence about rises in the cost of materials in New Zealand lately, particularly during COVID. And it's very hard to read short-term fluctuations for, for us to sort of qualify that. And some of the things that can happen with these sorts of uh, material shortages is that if a builder normally loses one material and there's a shortage, he might be forced to use a different material. So actually the cost of either of those materials hasn't risen, but the cost to the builder has, and that can make it very, very difficult to track. However, saying that, our housing models have shown increased rises in material costs over the last quarter or two as well. I think that's interesting that you're looking at all of those different variations. And as you said, we're hearing a lot about it here in New Zealand at the moment. And I guess probably the challenging part in, in your role is as CoreLogic is, and, and the Cordell data is sort of the, the respected third party view of what's going on, the independent view of what's going on in the market is kind of sifting out some of that individual small change from the overall, um, you know, the overall ongoing pattern of costing. How, how do you sort of manage that process? Okay. Um, one of the things I want to say about that is what we're always trying to do is we're trying to set a benchmark on pricing and stuff. So we're looking for the reasonable price. It's a price where you build. It doesn't go broke. And it's not a price where your consumers are paying for much. So we're trying to work through all of that. No, it's good. And, and I'm guessing there must be some areas that are, are more expensive to build anyway. I mean, I'm assuming looking over in, in Australia, Sydney has to be right up there as the most expensive place to build these days. Actually, if you want the most expensive place to build, you've got to go to a remote island. Because when you build somewhere like that, you've got to move all your materials and your labour to that location and also obviously provide accommodation and travel costs as well too. So, and one of the things we do is we've developed a series of location cost factors where we look at, at those differences in costs. So it's like a predictive model that looks how much it would cost. So, you know, if you're, if you're out on an island off the shore of WA or Northern Territory, that's going to be your biggest cost of all. Yeah, and, and interesting. And I'd, I would imagine, I guess, with the with the size of someone like Australia, those those cost factors and the um, you know, the cost of transportation must be quite significant. But even we we even see that in New Zealand as well. Yeah, absolutely. If you've got some areas which you know a good few hundred kilometres away from the nearest sort of major town and stuff as well. Obviously, we've got you know up to a fixed seven or eight hundred kilometres in Australia. So you do get bigger distances, but again, we don't have much population in those areas. Right. No, it's interesting. So, I mean, you, you work as part of a, you know, a larger team, obviously, of, uh, you know, building researchers and, you know, building assessors, managing over, I think it's around 50,000 individual construction cost items within our um, Abacus database. And I would imagine that often requires you to kind of think outside the box to come up with new ideas to get all of those different costs and I'm, and I'm thinking around our new we've just launched our new Cordell commercial estimator solution here in New Zealand uh, which is the first tool of its kind to be available to the the uh, insurance industry here uh, you know, were there any particularly sort of tricky costings problems that you had to work around when putting together a product such as that absolutely now this new commercial estimator which we call CCE for short 
it's like a massive project where we set out to cost about 40 different building types. So from offices to warehouses, from hotels to schools. And it was basically a year long project with an entire team of estimators, researchers and developers working on it. So it was you know, a really big project. And what we did is we've developed what we call an elemental calculator where we calculate the cost of each individual building element. So you might do a cost for the walls, a cost for the roof, cost for the rec rooms, a cost for the electrical, and then you add them all together. Now, when you compare this to traditionally, you might have used a square metre rate, which is where you have a model and you get a cost per area from that particular model. Using the elemental calculator allows us to be much more flexible because you can break down costs into many, many different bands and you get a much more accurate cost from that. So short of getting a quantity survey to look at your actual building or if you're estimating from an actual plan, it's kind of the most accurate you can be. Yeah. All right, so behind the costs inside CC, we've got about 20 to 25 separate calculations that, that drive the price of the building. And that's everything from walls to fire stairs and from lifts to toilets. And in fact, toilets is one of the most interesting pieces of work we had to do inside the commercial calculator. So we ended up building a series of modular wet rooms. So we had complete toilet rooms, change rooms, lunch rooms, et cetera, in a range of different sizes and specification levels. And we drew all of those up inside Archicad as well. And we had one staff member, Giselle, who had to spend lots of time ducking into toilets inside shopping centres and <laughs> loitering around our office shower rooms and discussing urinals with other members of the team. <laughs> And once we had those modular wet, modular wet rooms, we had to work out for each building type what a typical occupancy of that building would be, how many people would normally use that building. And then we looked at how many toilets you would need for that number of people for each building type. So you'd have different ratios for offices compared to retail environments or industrial buildings. And then from there, we had to work out a series of formula to convert the area of the building into a quantity of toilets for every single building type. So we got right down into the details of, of working out, you know, just exactly what each building needed. So that's, that's amazing. So we've got that amount of detail. And I assume that also covers the uh, other aspects of the, of the construction as well. So we know roughly what the building's being used for and how many people are going to be there and that. That's right. And it's, it's not just about the cost of the building, it's also things like demolition. So our leading estimator, Gary, had to work out how much a building weighed per square metre of area, depending on its floor, wall and roof type, to work out the disposal fees. And if you've ever sat down to try and weigh an entire building, it's quite a difficult task. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly not something that I'd like to try with the kitchen scales. That's that. <laughs> I mean, that sounds, I mean, I know we've just launched the commercial estimator here in New Zealand and the feedback's been, been very, very positive so far. So awesome amount of work that's gone into that. So now you finish that one. So what's next for the costings team? Okay. So I think the thing to work know in the costing team is that we do what we call first principles estimating. So that means we cost every part of the building from scratch. So we research the price of materials and labour with a dedicated team of researchers. And then we create cost recipes to combine those costs to work out how much it would be to build, for example, a wall frame. And then we use those recipes in a modular fashion. We'll take that wall frame cost and use that to build a complete wall recipe. 
and that might include things like the brickwork, the insulation, the linings, and the painting of the linings, the skirting, every sort of thing that's included in that wall. So then we have one cost for that entire wall per lineal metre, which makes it very easy to use. And for example, if we look back to CCE, for a single level, um, six, oh, sorry, for a six storey commercial office building, I think when I interrogated my reports in our custom database, I think we had 771 different recipes behind it. So with that comes a really massive maintenance burden. So you can think of us as virtual builders, but it's like painting the Harbour Bridge. As soon as we finish doing one end, we've got to go right back to the beginning and start painting at the other end. So we've got to continually review our recipes. So for us now, this year is very much a focus on making sure our maintenance is up to date. So we have every recipe in our systems dated so that we can track what needs to be, to be looked at. And part of doing that is also keeping up to date with changes in legislation and building practice. So a case in point is the proposed changes to insulation requirements in New Zealand that's been flagged. Um, so they're looking at, for, I think, three different solutions to bring up standards for energy efficiency in, inside New Zealand. So once that's been decided on, we'll have to go forth and update all our recipes and our house models to take into account that. And that's going to keep us busy for a while. I think that that's that's interesting because the out of those three options that are being proposed, I think I've read that the estimation is that the the third one could add add up to fifty thousand dollars to the cost of rebuilding a house. Um, so it will be interesting to see that um, all of that if that does eventuate roll through into our our costings data. That's right. Well, we can be sure once it's it's put into legislation, we have to tell you how much it actually does cost. <laughs> Indeed, absolutely. So Georgia, it's been fascinating talking to you. And as always, I learned something new. I now definitely have to go away and read that second PhD piece on alien architecture. But it's been great to hear what goes on behind the scenes of our construction and insurance solutions, as these are really key parts to CoreLogic's overall mission to help people build better lives. And you certainly bring the building part of that to the mission. So thank you again, Georgia. Really appreciate you sparing the time to talk to us, and I really hope we can do it again. And if you've enjoyed this pod, then please let us know, or better still, share it with others in your network. And if you'd like to learn any more around CoreLogic's costing and insurance solutions, then please don't hesitate to get in touch. So goodbye from me. Until next time. Thank you.